This is the American Association of Orthodontists, the Business of Orthodontics podcast, episode seven. Welcome. I'm Pam Paladin. My guests for today's podcast are Kevin Dillard, the AAO's general counsel. And in segment two, Kevin and I will be joined by Kevin O'Neill, the AAO's legislative counsel and a partner at Squire Patton Boggs. In our first segment, Kevin will be talking about a very timely topic, social media and online reputation management. Kevin, thanks for joining us, and what an interesting topic. It's good to be here, Pam. Thank you. How big a concern is this for members? Well, you know, everybody seems to have a Facebook page these days, or a Twitter account, or Instagram account, and it's it's an extension of the brand of the orthodontic office, and it's another way to reach potential patients, and it's a way to brand yourself to the world, as a matter of fact, about you as an orthodontist. So it's, it's, it's a very important topic, very important thing to do. Well, and I would think, too, that uh, one should consider your reputation, whether it's in person or online, a significant asset. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as a matter of fact, when it comes to online, your reputation can be damaged very quickly online, far more quickly than any other way, because we all know Yelp. Or, or Google reviews, things like that, you have one or two bad experiences with a patient and that comment and those low star ratings can pop up to the, to the top in your Google search. And I suspect a, a good uh, percentage of people these days are looking and, and reading those kinds of, of reviews and letting that influence their decisions. More and more, we hear members call into the legal department and say, we don't understand. We had a negative review on Google or Yelp or whatever the case may be and we don't have any idea what this patient is talking about. We didn't. We never did this. And what can we do to get it off of there? And often the answer is outside of contacting Yelp or Google and trying to petition them to get them to take it off. There's not a whole lot you can do. And and some of those, some of the times, uh, m- most of the time, I'd say those bad reviews come from just a bad patient experience that could have been avoided with with some. Uh, preventative measures, I should say. Okay. Well, let's talk about some of those measures. Uh, For example, if you have a social media account, uh, should you have a policy about who can and who cannot post on social media? Without question. I think you need to have very clear boundaries in your own office as to who who has access, number one, to the social media account and who can post and what they are able to post. You should review it periodically, and the reason for that is something, it's a legal doctrine called vicarious liability, and it means that you as the orthodontist own your practice. You own that Facebook account. That Facebook account is yours, just like your website is yours. Anything that is said on your website, on a Facebook account, just like uh, if you took out an ad in the newspaper, you're responsible for the content of what is on those things. So you don't want to give up too much control without knowing that the person who is having control of your account knows the boundaries and knows what they can say legally to avoid getting you into trouble. There are possible times when people will have uh, adverse comments posted. How do you know when is the right time to take action? I think you have to, to view it through a couple of different lenses. At times, you could have potentially a defamatory comment made about you. And the difference between defamation and just simply a bad review is whether it's true or whether it's provable, as a matter of fact. So if you have a patient who goes onto your Facebook account or or wherever, your social media account, and says, 
Dr. Dr. Paladin was an absolutely horrible orthodontist. The experience with her was was terrible. Her her staff was just uh, horrible and rude to me, and I'll never go back there again. That's a matter of opinion. There's not a whole lot that that is that you can say about that. You can you could post a reply to it and say I'm sorry that you had a bad experience. That is absolutely not typical of what most patients encounter at our office, and we're sorry that you had that experience. If it, however, goes into something that is provably false, uh, Dr. Paladin performed a such and such procedure on me and it required a hospital emergency visit, and you know that to be not true, that is actually damaging your professional reputation. And it is appropriate at that time to engage a local attorney and perhaps send them a letter in saying you need to remove this post immediately from Yelp or from Facebook or wherever because it is not true and you are damaging my professional reputation. Is this something that the doctor himself or herself needs to post, or is this something that can be uh, relegated to a staff person? I think it depends on the situation. Every unsatisfied patient is, you have to take on a case-by-case basis and and figure out how to do that. You know, when it comes to Facebook, there are also ways on certain posts that you might be able to disable comment sections, and that might be a good idea to do if you're posting something that might be mildly controversial in your community, perhaps, you might want to just disable the ability for people to comment on it, if you can, just to be proactive about mitigating an uncomfortable situation down the line. And also, I mean, never, you can never encourage direct private communication enough. I think most of the time, if patients feel like they can be heard by you in the office, it probably won't end up online in social media. Unless it's a good thing. Unless it's a good thing. And, 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 that's, and that's, on the other hand, I think probably the vast majority of social media posts by patients are on the opposite end of the spectrum, as you say. And, and it's fantastic. And they're referring their friends to the orthodontist because they had such a great experience. And they, and they want to tell people that they had a good experience at, at the orthodontist. Sometimes people share a little too much information on social media. Can that apply to orthodontists as well? Without question. As a healthcare provider in the community, an orthodontist, you're, you are in, in front of school groups, you're in front of community groups, you're probably an active member in your community in any number of business groups. You are a public figure in your community. And people know that they, I mean, there are some people out there, some opportunists who think that they can exploit you or might develop an unhealthy relationship with you. And if you overshare on Facebook or Twitter, whatever the case may be, you, you may be attracting some people who you don't want to attract. Cyberstalking is, is something. So I, I would suggest keeping your posts on Facebook. There's nothing wrong with being relatable. And, and presenting a relatable persona to your practice and to yourself as an orthodontist. But there's a difference between that and, and oversharing. You just have to know where the line is. You don't want to engage or encourage people from, from developing an unhealthy relationship with you online. There are... Uh Restrictions in advertising uh, that that most of our members are aware of. Do these kinds of restrictions also apply to social media? Yes, it, social media is the same thing as, like I said earlier, is the same thing. Same thing as any other public pronouncement that you make. A website, uh, a TV ad buy, a radio ad buy, a newspaper ad buy. It is your statements, and it goes back to vicarious liability too. You you can be just as guilty of false marketing or fraudulent marketing, uh, defamation against uh, an insurance company, or uh, HIPAA violation, perhaps if you post information about a patient that you don't have permission to post. If you post links, 
or if your staff posts links to perhaps questionable websites, that can reflect back on you and that can be used in a court of law to show that you were defaming or doing something illegal. Restraint of trade is a big issue. It's a very complicated area of law, but when we talk about restraint of trade, we're talking about a concerted effort to drive somebody out of the marketplace that is a legal market participant. So for instance, an insurance company, if you don't like uh, the terms an insurance company is offering, it's a bad idea to go online on your own Facebook page or your, even your own personal Facebook page or engage in any kind of online discussion about the benefits of a recent contract that's been offered and say something like, I'm not going to sign this. I hope everybody else doesn't either. Um, because that is, uh, could be incitement of a boycott. You don't want to talk negatively about other healthcare providers because, again, that could potentially get into defamation uh, or even negatively against a patient. Um, or a supplier, manufacturer, anything like that. So it's just that the rule applies. You need to be careful because what you say on Facebook or any other social media site is carries just the same amount of weight as if you take out an ad and put it in a newspaper for everybody to read. Oh, that's great advice. Well, let's talk about what kinds of things would be, would be safe to post. Can you help us with that? I think you can promote your practice. Like I said, there's nothing wrong with being relatable. You can post prizes, you can post uh, contests, any, anything like that. You can post office hours, how to contact, the best way to contact. You can even answer certain questions. You can make yourself more available to potential patients, to current patients, to even the media for them to contact you through Facebook to answer questions. One thing you do want to be careful of, if you're talking to current patients, you don't want to say anything relative to their treatment that they're undergoing right now, other than maybe perhaps a an innocuous question, something about uh, you know health, you know what kind of gum is best to chew or what kind of toothpaste do you recommend, something like that. You don't want to get into anything more complicated in terms of treatment or cost because what you say on Facebook, depending upon the situation, could actually revise the patient contract. For instance, if you promise a refund or promise a reduction in treatment fee or a discount or something like that, you could get into a situation where you are revising the contract on social media that you have otherwise signed prior to uh, treatment beginning. So it, it is just, again, common sense rules of the day. Again, don't overshare. Keep things uh, promoting your business. Don't disparage others. And if you're looking for good content, I can uh, throw in the AAO's very own consumer uh, Facebook and Twitter accounts. You're welcome as a member to uh, go in and share that content and it's updated almost daily. Kevin, there's been some uh, question I've had from uh, a couple of different members, and that has to do with uh, being able to have someone sign a release at the beginning of treatment. It's a blanket release that would allow them to post a patient's picture on social media pretty much whenever they feel like it. Is that something that's allowed? It could be, but probably not. When it comes to photo releases, particularly when there's no consideration or when there's no payment, you are getting something of value, i.e. their image, and they are not getting anything of value in return in terms of money or a discount for treatment or anything like that. So anytime you have a contract or a release like that where there isn't consideration on both ends, it is construed against the person who's getting something, in this case, the orthodontist. So Really, a photo release, it's probably not going to be effective if you just get a blanket release. You want to, when you're going to use your patient's health information, including their image, you want to 
get a release every single time you use that information, or at least for each instance uh, that you use it for, or for each image. And you want to be as specific as possible with them to let them know what image is going to be used and where it's going to be used and for what purpose, just so you know, not only for legal purposes, but for just interpersonal relationship purposes. I mean, you don't want your patients to, to feel like you're taking advantage of their picture. So just, I would suggest anytime you use a patient's picture, get a release for it. It's safest for everybody, yes. Absolutely. And we do have a wonderful photo release form on uh, aaoinfo.org for anyone who needs one, uh, and it's uh, very comprehensive and uh, very easily found on the website. Uh, Something else we have on the website that people uh, might want to review if they haven't for a while, and that's our our guide to HIPAA. Absolutely. One of the most frequently asked questions in the AO's legal department is is obligations and rights and responsibilities under HIPAA, and and our HIPAA guide answers all of that. Very good, and that's on aaoinfo.org. Also, just be aware that the June 2015 issue of the Bulletin provides information on reputation management, so make sure to, uh, to read those articles. Let's take a short break, and when we return... Kevin O'Neill from Squire Patton Boggs will join Kevin Dillard and me. What makes me smile? Cheeseburgers make me smile. My kids make me smile. And I like to smile, thanks to my orthodontist. My dentist said go to a specialist. Orthodontists have the training. The experience. And the treatment options, like clear aligners and braces. For my best smile. Now, my smile makes me smile. For your best smile, find an AAO orthodontist at mylifemysmile.org. The American Association of Orthodontists. This is Pam Paladin, back with Kevin Dillard, the AAO's general counsel. And we're joined now by Kevin O'Neill, the AAO's legislative counsel and a partner at Squire Patton Boggs to get an update on the medical device tax and the raise bill. Kevin O'Neill, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be back with you. We're excited to hear what you have to say about the medical device tax and raise bill. Which one do you want to take first? Well, let's start with the medical device tax because we've got some important news there that I think will uh, make a lot of folks listening to this podcast are very happy. Last week, the House of Representatives voted to repeal the medical device tax when they passed a bill, H.R. 160, called the Protect Medical Innovation Act of 2015. For those listeners who've been engaged with the AAO politically uh, the last few years, they'll recognize the lead sponsor of this bill, a gentleman by the name of Eric Paulson from Minnesota, a Republican and a member of the Ways and Means Committee, which oversees jurisdiction uh, for all tax bills. I'm sure everyone is aware of what the medical device tax is. It's a 2.3% levy on all uh, sales of medical devices, not profits. And that levy has a a tremendously detrimental impact on uh, innovation in the medical device uh, industry here in the United States. It's been widely blamed for shipping a lot of jobs overseas and for really uh, uh, weighing down the profitability prospects for a lot of growing medical device companies. And there's been, since it was passed as part of the Affordable Care Act, there's been a quick bipartisan movement to try and get that uh, that repealed so that uh, the device industry here can thrive and, uh, and, and really uh, push off against some foreign competitors who would otherwise uh, take away this market. So for years, we've had people introducing something like the Protect Medical Innovation Act. It's been uh, introduced a couple of times, but it hasn't been able to get to the finish line. And this year, they've done some great things. 
they lined up 282 House sponsors, uh, 241 of them Republican, 41 of them Democrats, so a very bipartisan bill in the House. Uh, and when they voted this week, or I'm sorry, last week, it passed the House by almost exactly that margin, 280 for it, 140 against it. Uh, 234 of those people voting for it were Republican, and about uh, 46 Democrats uh, voted for the bill. So they have a bipartisan, uh, solid majority that passed that bill. And I don't know if you want to talk about some of the next steps with that. Yes, please. Let's let's talk about that. It, it's it's now that it's left the House, it's passed the House. Is it going to the Senate? It will go to the Senate, and there's a similar bill there that's been introduced by Orrin Hatch. Uh, Republican from Utah, who's the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, which is the counterpart to the House Ways and Means Committee. That bill is very popular as well. It's got 37 sponsors, five Democrats uh, and 32 Republicans. And uh, the question there is, it's obviously more difficult to pass things in the Senate. You generally require 60 votes in order to uh, move things through and overcome filibuster attempts. Uh, this could be particularly challenging because uh, in the Senate, while you've got some Democrats who are on that, notably Democrats from places like Minnesota and Massachusetts, where the medical device industry is strong but very concerned, uh, the question is the president of the United States is threatening to veto the bill. It's probably important for our listeners to understand what, where the source of that uh, veto threat is coming from. Because the medical device tax was added to the Affordable Care Act as a way to raise the revenue needed to pay for the Affordable Care Act, uh, you've got to find a way to offset that revenue. In passing the bill, uh, it looks like there there'll be a loss to the Treasury of $29 billion over the next six or seven uh, fiscal years. Even in Washington, $29 billion is real money. So in the House, they took a very interesting tack. They repealed the device tax and they prohibited it from being counted as a loss uh, on the federal books. The Senate probably won't be able to do that same thing. And the president has indicated he'll only sign a medical device tax repeal that pays for itself, finds $29 billion elsewhere to pay for uh, that share of the Affordable Care Act. I think that's very unlikely to see the House Republicans do something like that. So the, uh, we're not clear if it'll get through the Senate. And then the question is, if it does get through the Senate, will President Obama actually follow through on vetoing a very popular bill that manages to get through both chambers of Congress? So lots to see here, lots to stay tuned on. But if you're listening, one of the things you can do is contact your senators, uh, call them, call the switchboard 202-224-3121, ask to be connected to your senator's offices, and encourage the Senate offices to vote to repeal the medical device tax by passing uh, the Senate legislation that's S-149. Is there also a way to follow this online, Kevin? Well, yeah, you can always go uh, to the AAO website. They've got some information on this, but you can also go to thomas.gov. Uh, and thomas.gov, if you'll punch in the bill number in the Senate, that's S149. In the House, that's HR160. Uh, you can track the progress of this bill and see whether or not your member of Congress and your senators are sponsors of that bill. Do you feel a phone call is more effective, though? I think anytime you guys can weigh in with your members, it's, a, it's effective. Uh, we don't want to generate talking points or a sample letter because we really want it to come from you all. When I visit with orthodontists, 
uh, and I talked to them about the medical device tax, they talk about the challenges that it presents, not just for them as business people, but for them as medical, medical practitioners. They're faced with either passing on that cost to their consumers and potentially having some of their patients decide that the cost is too much for them to bear and not get the treatment that uh, they need, or uh, the orthodontists are uh, eating that cost. That seems to be the more general path, and that's obviously keeping them from turning around and buying new equipment or hiring new staff or having the kind of profitability that they want as uh, small business people. So I think it's very important that you all weigh in and talk about the impact the medical device tax is having on your profession and on your patients. And should we also mention, Kevin, that, that the, we're recording this before the Supreme Court announcement for King versus Burwell, and how can that uh, announcement play out against um, the, uh, the uh, medical device tax results? Well, it's a great question. We are expecting uh, a decision any moment now from the Supreme Court before July 1st on King versus Burwell. And uh, depending on what they decide, if they rule against the Obama administration there, uh, then they will undermine some of the key tenets of the Affordable Care Act, and they'll force Congress and the states to scramble uh, to address those changes. When they scramble, Republicans have in, uh, have in place some preliminary plans uh, to pass some reforms and changes to the Affordable Care Act, and it does present an opportunity to uh, hitch another ride for the medical device tax to, to be put on a bill that uh, President Obama is uh, almost dared to veto, if you will. So I think that that's an opportunity. And maybe that's a good place for us to transition and talk about another bill your listeners are familiar with, and that's the RAISE Act, uh, which we talked about in an earlier podcast, because that too will be looking for a vehicle uh, when Republicans start to push through broader health care measures uh, later this year. As you uh, will remember, the RAISE Act uh, is something that the American Association of Orthodontists Committee on Government Affairs and Political Action Committee developed out of some conversations they had in the summer of 2014 uh, with members of Congress when they were talking about frustrations those members had uh, with the Affordable Care Act and with their ability to access uh, services like orthodontics. And uh, basically, the uh, RAISE Act does a few things. It allows people to put more money into a flexible spending account. The Affordable Care Act had reduced that to $2,500. This bill would take it back to $5,000. It would allow most. Uh, it would allow people to roll over those funds from year to year, so you could actually build up the kind of balance uh, needed to pay for orthodontics in full or for other major major medical procedures. And it would allow larger families to put more money aside. So Kevin Dillard was on the show earlier. Kevin's got three strapping young boys, and the Raise Act would allow him to put away uh, five hundred dollars more uh, because he's got a third dependent than I would in my family, where there's just uh, we have the traditional family of four. Uh, so those three things in combination would really give a lot of personal engagement, personal responsibility back to uh, patients to make the medical choices that they want uh, and do so in a way that would be beneficial to the orthodontics profession uh, and any other number of medical professions. So we're really excited about the RAISE Act and where it's been heading. It's been trending up all spring. Uh, the, uh, the AAO had uh, a fly-in in, in the first quarter of the year and had uh, folks go around. Uh, the lead sponsors are Steve Stivers, a Republican from Ohio, and Michelle Lujan Grisham, a Democrat from New Mexico. And uh, as of Friday, we're up to 49 co-sponsors, 35 Republicans, 13 Democrats. And that's a very solid number. Uh, but with the help of uh, other folks here, uh, we'd love to get your member of Congress on this bill. And how do people do that? 
Well, again, I think it goes back to calling the switchboards at uh, 202-225-3121, asking to be connected to your House member or your senators, uh, and then talk to them a little bit about uh, the RAISE Act. I know materials are available on the website uh, of the AAO to find out a little bit about that, and you can easily adapt uh, the materials that are on the website into talking points that you can use with your member of Congress. I do want to thank the American Dental Association. They had a recent fly-in in the May time period, they brought in dentists from across the country to talk about the ADA's legislative agenda. And for the first time, the RAISE Act was on there. Uh, and they, that succeeded in drumming up a few more co-sponsors in the last six weeks or so. So I think it's terrific example here of the power of the AAO, uh, AAO COGA and AAO PAC uh, to show that they're able to set the agenda for the entire dental community and the medical profession uh, here with some of the policy choices that they're making. Definitely. Many of us can benefit from uh, increased FSA uh, fundabilities. Uh, the raise bill seems like it's moving fairly quickly. Is, is, that, uh, uh, is that accurate? Well, you know, I mean, it's picking up support. Uh, we'll know it's moving quickly when we are able to find something to get it attached to. It's probably a small enough bill. It'll need to be attached to a broader set of reforms. As I mentioned with King versus Burwell, uh, if the case is decided one way, there may be a, a very short-term need to have a, a large reform bill for the Affordable Care Act. If the government wins the King versus Burwell case in the Supreme Court, that may undermine uh, the chances of any significant health care reform passing this year. Very good. And uh, Kevin, would you give us please that phone number again for people to call if they want to talk to their representatives in Congress about the medical device tax or the RAISE Act? Sure. If you don't know your member of Congress or their phone number, you want to call the switchboard in the U.S. Capitol. That number is 202-225-3121. Very good. And that is Kevin O'Neill, the AAO's Legislative Council and a partner at Squire Patent Boggs and updates on the medical device tax repeal and the RAISE Act. Thank you, Kevin. And thank you, Kevin Dillard. And that's a wrap for Episode 7 of the AAO's The Business of Orthodontics podcast. Thanks to Kevin Dillard, the AAO's General Counsel, for sharing your advice with AAO members. And thanks to Kevin O'Neill, the AAO's Legislative Counsel and a partner at Squire Patton Boggs. Remember, if you wish to contact your representatives in Congress to share your thoughts on the medical device tax repeal and the RAISE Act, call 202-225-3121. If you have subject areas you'd like addressed on a future podcast, please email them to info at aaortho.org or call 800-424-2841. This is Pam Paladin. Thanks for listening to the Business of Orthodontics podcast, Episode 7.